My topic this afternoon is Frontline Neighbors. And my text from the last verse of the Gospel reading, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This word frontline stands for our everyday, workday, weekday world. Our emphasis here at the Church of the Cross is on following Jesus on the front lines of our lives. Not just when we gather here to praise and pray in his name on Sunday afternoons. The question for us today is, can we be neighbors when we are on our front lines? Questions naturally arise. What does it mean to be a neighbor? A neighbor to whom? How do we do it? And why should we do it? These are all honest questions, and they deserve some exploration. Our search begins, of course, with Jesus' encounter with a lawyer in Luke chapter 10. The word lawyer does not refer to someone who represents you in court in a legal matter but rather to someone expert in the law, the Torah, who studied it industriously and was able to advise you on what it required of you by applying general principles to the particulars of your life. You should not work on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest. But could you do work in an emergency? Your valuable ox wanders into a ditch on the Sabbath. Could you pull it out? That was clearly work. But if you waited until Sunday, it might be dead. That was a question to take to a lawyer. This lawyer wants to test Jesus with a commonplace question, a hearty theological perennial. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus refers him to the law, what is written in it. And he responds with a summary of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus commends him. Do this and you will live. But we read the lawyer wanted to justify himself. To show how necessary was his profession, his learning, his subtle and well-furnished mind. The lawyer is probably thinking, Rabbi, it's not that easy. You can quote scripture readily, but applying it to life is much more difficult. And so he asks the more difficult question. And you intellectuals with subtle and deep and well-furnished minds will sympathize. And who is my neighbor? Perhaps he's thinking, is everyone I pass on the crowded streets of Jerusalem my neighbor? How can I love everyone I meet as much as I love myself? And if I must pick and choose, then by what criterion? Leviticus 19.18 suggests it is the sons of your own people that you are to love as your neighbor. That is fellow Jews, whom the law thus identifies. But this doesn't limit the field much in the crowded streets of Jerusalem. So who is my neighbor, Mr. Glib, quoter of scripture, as though that solved everything? Who is my neighbor, asks the lawyer. Jesus responds with a parable, which we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is a story of such spare efficiency that every detail works, and a story of such emotional power that we are left with profound admiration for the anonymous hero. 
I have no doubt that every one of us could tell this story to a group of fellow Christians if we were imprisoned together for the faith without a Bible. The meaning of the parable is clear. My neighbor is the stranger in need whom I encounter on the front lines of my life. Not just my kinsman, my classmate, the couple who live next door. Indeed, my neighbor may be of an age or gender or ethnicity or religious persuasion or occupation that I have good reason to fear and to shun. Jews and Samaritans were openly hostile to one another. Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds, both physically and spiritually. They were an unclean people, and Jews traveling from Judea to Galilee often crossed the Jordan to avoid going through Samaria. Yet in the parable, it is the Samaritan, not the priest or the Levite, who had compassion on the man lying beaten and robbed on the roadside. Neighborliness, Jesus is saying, knows no national boundaries, requires no previous relationship, is not limited by affinity or preference or what we are socially comfortable with. Your neighbor is the total stranger in clear need whom you encounter on the front lines of your life. Do for him or her what you would wish someone to do for you if you were in such a situation. And you will fulfill the hope of the psalmist in Psalm 35. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Now, becoming a neighbor in the sense Jesus means it is easy to prescribe and much harder to do in the course of a lifetime. Permit me to share three examples of failure in my own life. I was driving through Brookline to cross the Charles when I passed at a church in Porter Square, North Cambridge. It was early Sunday morning and I was hurrying to get ready for the 8 a.m. service. Just ahead of me, a taxi pulled suddenly out of a side street and knocked a cyclist off her bicycle. I didn't have time to stop. I looked in the rearview mirror as I drove past and saw the cyclist sit up. I quieted my conscience with the thought, oh, she must be all right. She sat up. One Thanksgiving, there was a ring at the doorbell as we were getting ready to go into Thanksgiving dinner. The doorbell in this house didn't usually ring because we were then living in a Gothic revival rectory in New York City with gates across the front of the portico to keep the homeless off our front steps. So normally you couldn't reach the doorbell to ring it. But the gates had been left open for our dinner guests. I answered the door and a well-dressed African-American man about my age stood there. I said, may I help you? He said, is this where they are serving a Thanksgiving dinner? I said, clearly not wanting to help him, no, I'm sorry, you must have the wrong church, and closed the door. Some years later in Cooperstown, New York, I was instructing a young man who showed interest in the Christian faith. After he had been baptized, he told me that his mother had just been diagnosed with breast cancer and was very scared. I urged him to tell his mother to come see me for prayer and counsel. 
Some days later, on my way to, and probably late for, a meeting, I met her outside the church. Are you looking for me, I said. She nodded, indeed looking scared. I said, I can't talk to you right now. I have a meeting. Can you come back tomorrow morning? She nodded and left. It won't surprise you to know that she did not come back, and her son soon became infrequent at church and then stopped coming altogether. We could probably spend five or six melancholy hours, I'm not the only sinner here, with an open mic sharing stories of failing to meet the needs of total strangers encountered on the front lines of our lives. The challenge is made so difficult by two formidable problems, busyness and fear. If we are not interruptible, then we cannot be good Samaritans. I needed to be late for the early service to help the injured cyclist, or maybe I wouldn't have gotten there at all. Thanksgiving giving dinner would have gotten cold if I talked further with the man at the front door, or perhaps even invited him in. A stranger in New York City? Are you crazy? I can't even remember what meeting I was on the way to when I blew off the scared woman with breast cancer and doubtless made her feel she'd made a mistake in coming to see me, one she would not make again. The Good Samaritan was interruptible and even took the injured man to an inn. There was no 9-11 in those days and provided for his long-term care. Now that I'm retired, I'm much more interruptible. It's a blessing that you youngsters can look forward to when your career, quote-unquote, is finished and you can be real and godly people able to be interrupted. But I still face the second obstacle, which is fear. Fear of what? Fear of incompetence, that I can bring nothing useful to the stranger in need or will make the situation even worse. Fear of being overwhelmed by another person's pain and distress. Blood in quantity does make me nauseous. In the parable, how did the Samaritan know the situation wasn't a setup? The victim might have been pretending, and when the Samaritan bent over him, spring up, and his fellow gang members would jump out from behind the rocks, and the Samaritan would end up the victim. This is not fanciful, friends. There can be a real cost to being a neighbor. In the story, the Samaritan spends wine and oil and bandages and two days' wages that's what a denarius represented, on helping the man fallen among thieves. Just recently, a youth in Rhode Island tried to break up a fight between classmates and was shot dead. In Liberia, a man helped get a pregnant woman in distress to the hospital. It turned out she was infected with the Ebola virus. His name was Thomas Duncan, and he died this week in a hospital in Dallas, Texas. So fear of getting involved can have a real basis. But as we read in the first letter of John, perfect love casts out fear. And if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, then that must be with God's love, agape, which only comes as we open ourselves more and more to his Holy Spirit and walk in that love. Most of the time, our opportunities to be neighbor to total strangers in need are far less dramatic than car crashes or pregnant women running a high fever. They are so undramatic 
that we don't happen to notice them. So maybe that's even a third obstacle to neighborliness, general insensitivity to others, because we are all wrapped up in ourselves with those text messages arriving steadily and the earbuds playing our favorite music in our ears over and over again. Fear, busyness, self-absorption. St. Paul clearly has me in mind when in Romans 13 he writes, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what fear and busyness and self-absorption reflect, the desires of the flesh. I once had a brilliant idea in the face of Jesus' challenge to love my neighbor and all this failure I was experiencing. It was in the late 1980s when I was rector of St. James's Church in North Cambridge. I started a program called Neighborliness Training. As a group, we studied the parable of the Good Samaritan together. We surveyed North Cambridge's social welfare resources and found out where food banks, meal programs, emergency rooms, and homeless shelters were located. We took instruction in cardiopulmonary resuscitation. We pledged to walk the streets of North Cambridge's Good Samaritans and planned to meet monthly to share our experience and encourage one another. I thought I was really on to something. I saw neighborliness training spreading throughout the churches. Manuals would be written and published, regional and then national gatherings held, write-ups in the press of neighborliness-trained Good Samaritans saving lives, helping desperate people. Who knows? Me as the Mother Teresa of sidewalk interventions. Would a Nobel Peace Prize have been out of the question? (laughs) But when we met after a month, nobody had met any strangers in desperate need. And after two months, we weren't much interested in meeting together anymore. The only good thing that lasted was the CPR training, which I recommend strongly. (laughs) You really could save a life. Last year, I visited a man at Brigham and Women's who had gone into full cardiac arrest on the Quincy Red Line station platform. As he fell down, a man stepped off the train who knew CPR and got his heart restarted in two or three minutes. Apparently, after six minutes, brain damage begins. Speed is everything, and an ambulance may take 15 or 20 minutes to arrive. So sign up for CPR training or renew it. I haven't practiced in 35 years, but I still carry a card in my wallet with the instructions. But I'd hate to be kneeling beside a dying person, frankly boning up on CPR techniques. I need a renewal course. With cell phones not available in the 1980s and rapid first responders in urban areas, the notion of regularly rescuing the physically stricken is probably a little unrealistic. But what about the mentally or spiritually stricken? The tired-looking woman at the checkout? The old man on the subway platform looking as though he had lost his way? the young woman with tear-streaked cheeks sitting opposite you on the trolley. Are there total strangers around us in real need who have been mugged not by robbers, but by life, by false hopes, by unfaithful friends, by disease, by the death of loved ones? 
And can we stop long enough to ask if they are all right, to listen to their response, perhaps to advise, and above all, to remember them in our prayers? Edith and I were walking our dog Maggie last Monday when we met a woman with a long-legged poodle named Angus. We exchanged pleasantries, including the information that she was a filmmaker and I was a retired clergyman. As the conversation continued, Edith and I learned that Angus had lung cancer and would not live long, that the woman has had him for two years since her friend, the former owner, died suddenly and in Angus's presence, that her business partner had just died having made a film about his life, that her family are all out in California. I said, you've had a lot of losses. She said, yes, and it's hard because I'm secular. You have something to give you hope, but I have nothing. I tried church once, but it was all political and I needed to get away from it. And what did I say then? I said, it's hard, I'm sorry. Here was a perfect stranger in real need. It wasn't the moment to present the four spiritual laws, but I could have given her our address and asked her to tea. She looked like the sort of person who would enjoy tea, but I didn't. Why not? Well, total stranger and all that. So, fear, insensitivity, busyness, another failure in the neighborliness department. But Edith and I meet dog owners regularly in our morning walks. And you better bet that we are praying hard to meet Angus and his owner again. The lawyer who confronted Jesus thought he was having a theological discussion when Jesus said, which of these three do you think, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The answer was easy. The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. He must have been surprised, and you may be as well, with what Jesus said next. You go and do likewise. Amen.